Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we're bringing the third and final entry in our three-part series on the great Pistol Pete Maravich. In our first episode in this series, we covered Pete's father, Press Maravich, and his upbringing in western Pennsylvania near the steel mills, as well as the early life of Pistol Pete. In part two, we covered Pete's college career at Louisiana State University, While he was there, he broke Oscar Robertson's all-time scoring record. Pistol Pete averaged just over 44 points per game for his college career, and nobody else in Division I history even comes close. His college career total of 3,667 points is still the all-time Division I record. And Pistol Pete set that record in just three seasons. And even though players can now play four seasons, nobody has ever seriously threatened Pete's record. If there is anyone out there averaging anywhere near 44 points per game, well then that player is leaving for the NBA after just one year. Pete also won the 1970 Naismith National Player of the Year Award. Now, with all of that, it was assumed that Pete would be one of the top picks in the 1970 NBA draft. I mean, the guy was an unstoppable scorer. On the other hand, there were some who questioned how Pistol Pete's freewheeling one-man show style would fit on an NBA team where everybody's skill level was so much higher than in college. The NBA of the early 1970s put an emphasis on team play where you have all five players working together to score baskets and play defense. At the draft, the first team on the clock was the Detroit Pistons. They wanted a big man because big men were at a premium. In 1970, the NBA still had Will Chamberlain, a young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Willis Reed, Elvin Hayes, and Nate Thurman. The league was full of Hall of Fame big men. If any team was serious about becoming a championship contender, then they had to have a perennial all-star in the middle. In that context, the Pistons drafted Bob Lanier, a 6'11 center from St. Bonaventure University. And yes, Bob Lanier also became a Hall of Famer. The San Diego Rockets possessed the second pick, and they were nervous about taking Pistol Pete. He was such a ball-dominant guard that they were afraid that he would take some scoring away from Elvin Hayes. They wanted a more team-oriented type player. They wanted a guy who would adjust to the Rockets and play team ball. And with that in mind, the Rockets took Rudy Tomjanovich from the University of Michigan. Now, Tomjanovich also became a Hall of Famer, but as a coach, not a player. Although he was a five-time All-Star as a player, so he was no slouch. Then came the Atlanta Hawks with the third pick in the draft, and they wanted someone who could fill the seats. They needed a big attraction who could move season tickets. Their answer to that problem was Pistol Pete Maravich. But that did not mean that Pete would automatically go to the Hawks. At the time, there was this other basketball league called the ABA, and they also wanted to have Pistol Pete in their league. They figured out that Pete's flashy style was perfect for the fast-paced brand of basketball that they played in the ABA. While the ABA did have a draft process, when it came to big names like Pistol Pete, the teams in the NBA would work together to get that player in the league. 
The ABA owners figured that it was better to just get Pistol Pete into the league, even if it was on another team, than to watch him go over to the NBA. That was because having Pistol Pete in the ABA would increase ticket sales everywhere he went, and that benefited the entire league. So Pistol Pete entered into negotiations with the Carolina Cougars, the ABA team that was likely to have the best chance of landing him, and the Atlanta Hawks, the NBA team that drafted him, and he played both teams against each other in negotiations. The Cougars offered an enormous contract of nearly $500,000 per year, but most of that money was to be deferred. That meant that Pistol Pete would only get a small portion of that money up front, with the rest of it to be paid out 20 to 25 years in the future. The Hawks were offering $1.8 million over five years, but all of that money would be paid out over the course of the contract, not in some future century as was common with ABA contracts. In order to sweeten the deal, the Hawks offered Press Maravich a job with the club, hoping that that would convince Pete to sign. But Press said that he was not going to ride Pete's coattails. He politely declined the offer. However, Press Maravich had this to say about where Pete would land. Quote, I think that somewhere in his heart he still wants to play against his boyhood idols, Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. Unquote. And both of those players were in the NBA. So, Pete signed with the Atlanta Hawks. There was a ton of fanfare in Atlanta when they announced that Pistol Pete was joining the team. As you can imagine, when a rookie joins a team with a lot of hype, it can ruffle the feathers of the veterans. The way that the veterans typically look at a situation like this is that the rookie needs to prove himself all over again. It does not matter how many points he scored in college, they had to prove that they could do it at the pro level. After all, most of the NBA was college All-Americans or All-Conference players. That's why they're in the NBA. Nearly every one of them was their college team's leading scorer. And the Hawks were not a bad team. They had Lou Hudson, Bill Bridges, Walt Bellamy, and Walt Hazard. On paper, this was a strong squad. However, those veterans were not happy when they found out how much the Hawks were going to pay Pistol Pete. He was obviously talented, but trying to get him to fit into a team concept was going to take some time. For Pete's entire life, the game had always revolved around him and him alone. He came in with probably more pressure than most rookies. Because of how much he scored in college, anything lower than a 30 point per game average was going to look like a failure in the eyes of most fans. Even Jerry West said that Pistol Pete entered the league with probably more pressure than any of the other rookies. In his first game of his career, he had to play against the Milwaukee Bucks, which meant matching up with one of his heroes, Oscar Robertson. The Pistol only scored 7 points in 22 minutes of action, and they lost the game. In his second game, he played against the San Francisco Warriors, and again, only scored 7 points. To his critics, this was proof that he could not live up to the hype. If ESPN had existed back in those days, they would have been tearing him apart. But in his third game against the Detroit Pistons, he broke out for 23 points, again in a loss, but he proved that he could score at an NBA level. When he finally got a chance to go against his hero, Jerry West, well, West dropped 36 points on the pistol. It was one of those situations where a reigning superstar wanted to show a hyped up rookie what real talent looks like. Both Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant were known for having particularly big games against high-profile rookies. But over the course of his rookie year, he scored 40 or more points on three occasions, and he finished his rookie season with an average of 23 points per game, and that is very respectable, especially considering that he was jeered at almost every road game of the season. In Philadelphia, a fan brought a sign that read, Hey Pistol Pete, why do hot dogs cost $2 million in Atlanta, but only 35 cents in Philadelphia? You have got to love 
the fans in Philadelphia. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Now, during his second season with the Hawks, his scoring average dropped from 23 points per game to just 19 points per game, but his assists went up from four per game to six per game. He was playing more of a team game and getting his teammates involved, and he had his very first 50-point scoring game, proving that he could bring it. Things were on the rise for Pistol Pete, but the pressure and the loneliness were getting to him. Pistol Pete had never before been that comfortable with fame. No matter where he went, a restaurant, the movie theater, or just out in the town, he was bothered for autographs. It seemed that everyone wanted a piece of him, and he had a hard time handling it, especially with the dark demons that he had. If you remember from our last episode, Pete's mother was an alcoholic, and Pete was drinking more heavily himself while in the NBA. His personal life was far from perfect. He had a hard time reconciling his public persona of the pistol and the real him, which was just regular old Pete. For him, it was like living two different lives. The public life, where everything was going perfect. He was improving on the court and signing endorsements right and left. And then there was his personal life, where he was drinking to numb himself from his loneliness and his pain. As training camp opened for his third season, there was a surprise at practice. Dr. J was there. Julius Irving had completed his rookie year in the NBA playing for the Virginia Squires, but he was trying to get out of that contract and jump to the NBA. In 1971, the Milwaukee Bucks used their first round pick to draft Dr. J, and that would have put him on the same team with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson, but Milwaukee was in for a huge surprise. They announced that they had drafted Julius Irving, but then Atlanta announced that they had already signed Dr. J the night before the draft, claiming that they didn't need to draft Dr. J since he had already been a professional from another league. In any case, it meant that Dr. J showed up for the Atlanta Hawks training camp in an effort to get out of his Squires contract. He played in two preseason games, scoring 28 and 32 points respectively. And according to Irving, the chemistry between him and Pistol Pete was instantaneous. The two just clicked like they had been playing together for their whole lives. Dr. J has said that that was one of the best weeks of his life as a professional player. But in the end, a judge ruled that Dr. J's contract with the Virginia Squires was legitimate and superseded his contract with the Hawks. He would legally have to return to the Squires or else get sued for breach of contract. So that was the end of that experiment. However, for Pete, it was a great year. He increased his numbers to 26 points per game and 7 assists per game, and he was selected to his first All-Star game. And he duplicated those numbers in his fourth season and made the All-Star game again. Now, he was really developing into a great player, but Atlanta had other thoughts, and they traded Pete to the expansion New Orleans Jazz. For Pete, it was a return to Louisiana where he played his college ball, and he was an instant hit, and the team marketed it as Pete returning home. But the good feelings of returning to Louisiana did not last. A tragedy struck the Maravich family. Pete's mother took her own life while on the phone with his older brother Ronnie and while their niece Diana was still in the house. Pete began to really spiral into alcoholism and depression and it was a very tough year for the Maravich family. Pete's number dropped and the team had a record of 23 and 59 which was not good at all. He continued to struggle in his sixth season in the NBA and his second with the Jazz. His girlfriend from college Jackie who was still in his life, she supported Pete in the good times and the bad times. She was there for Pete and helped pull him out of his quagmire and back into something more positive. She was the best thing that could have happened to him at that time in his life. During the middle of that season, Pete married Jackie 
and things began to rebound. For the next three seasons, Pete was selected to the All-Star Game and put up incredible numbers, even scoring over 31 points per game in 1977. He was a legitimate NBA superstar. To make things even better, his first son Jason was born in 1979, but injuries were starting to pile up and he was playing fewer and fewer games. Going into his 10th NBA season, the Jazz decided to relocate to Utah and became the Utah Jazz. And Pete made the move with the team, but he was not a fan of Salt Lake City. He was also still drinking. He only played 17 games for Utah and then was waived after he had passed out in the wrong room of the team hotel. The Jazz had had enough of Pete. He was becoming more injury prone and unreliable. On a personal note, I find it absolutely incredible that Pete could still manage to play at such a high level for most of his career while struggling with alcohol and depression. On one hand, it was very sad, and on the other hand, it was amazing that he could still do that. Well, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with Pistol Pete and the final team he played for in the NBA. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of you unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts long sleeve shirts phone cases mugs blankets pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com row number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15 percent discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code shn15 follow the link on the show notes Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold, you know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go (laughs) ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. 
Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of Pistol Pete Maravich. Right before the break, Pete was cut from the Utah Jazz because he had become an unreliable player due to his alcoholism and injuries. Well, now that he was cut from the Jazz, the only two teams that had even considered signing him were the Boston Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers. The 76ers gave him a physical, but did not like the way that his knee responded. While they're deliberating about how much money to offer Pete, he went ahead and signed with the Celtics when Red Auerbach sold him on the tradition and the mystique of the Boston Celtics. It was a low-risk move for the Celtics since they were all set with the starting five. They wanted Pete to come off the bench. Besides, the team was on the rise with its own hyped-up rookie, a guy by the name of Larry Bird. It was a familiar story to Pete. He had walked in those shoes himself, but he had a front-row seat to Larry Bird, who was another big-name rookie like Pete once was, except that Larry Bird had always been a team-oriented player, so the transition from college to the NBA was pretty seamless for Bird. He made the All-Star game as a rookie and led the team with 21 points per game as well as 61 victories. The Celtics made it all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals before losing to the Philadelphia 76ers, the very team that Pete could have been a part of. Now, this was as close as Pete Maravich ever got to a championship. If he had stayed with the Celtics for one more year, he could have won a championship as a reserve player. But as the 1980 season ended, Pete realized that as long as he stayed with the Celtics, he would always come off the bench. And that was something that hurt him even more than his bum knee. He had been the starting point guard his entire life. He never had to come off the bench. Essentially, his pride was hurt. He knew as much as anyone that the Celtics had the makings of a championship team, but if he could not be a starter, then he wanted nothing to do with it. His pride would not let him return to the Celtics as a reserve player. And that is how Pistol Pete's NBA career ended. He only played 10 seasons. He was the prodigy that his father Press predicted would be the greatest player of all time, but his body began to fall apart and his years with alcohol aged him faster than normal. It was during that first year away from basketball that he had to really figure out who he was without basketball. It was one of the things that he found joy in. It was his escape from his troubles at home. It was the one place where he was in control and his destiny was in his own hands. The basketball court was everything to Pete. What would he do without it? In March of 1982, his wife Jackie gave birth to their second son Joshua, but Pete was falling deeper and deeper into despair, and he began to struggle with thoughts of taking his own life. But he also had two young sons that needed him, and he had trouble sleeping because of it. One night, he cried out from sweat-soaked bedsheets and cried out to God to save him. And that was the day that his life completely changed. He became a Christian and reoriented his life around his newfound faith. According to his wife Jackie, it was like all of his demons disappeared. He had a purpose in his life. He was more loving and found a peace that she had never seen in him before. He became a better father and a better husband. He began to devote his time and energy to various Christian ministries. He was a new man. For Pete, it felt like that his old persona, the pistol, had died and he was now just Pete. The person that he always was on the inside, but now he was just Pete on the outside too. He was no longer trying to lead two different lives. He was even invited back to the annual All-Star Weekend to serve as the chaplain for the All-Star players who needed somebody to talk to or some guiding words of wisdom. In 1987, his father Press passed away from cancer, and the last thing that Pete said to his father was, quote, I'll see you soon, unquote. And that bothered Jackie because she did not know what it meant and it sounded quite ominous. And just nine months later, during a pickup game of basketball with some Christian ministers, 
Pete died on the court of an undiagnosed heart issue. He was missing one of the two artery systems necessary for the heart. The doctor said that it was a miracle that Pete even lived as long as he did. They said that based on his heart condition, he should have died as a teenager. They could not figure out how he played 10 seasons as a professional athlete. Medically, it did not make any sense at all. Eight years later, in 1996, the NBA announced the 50 greatest players list. They are going to have a halftime ceremony at the All-Star Game and gather all of these legends together. 49 of the 50 players were still alive. The only one who was not was Pete Maravich. And when it was time to introduce him as part of the ceremony, the announcer said, Represented by his two sons, Joshua and Jason, from the New Orleans Jazz, number seven, Pistol Pete Maravich. Standing there with the greatest basketball players in the world were Pete's two teenage sons, both wearing special jackets that the NBA had made up for everyone. The jackets were in the jazz colors with a number seven patch on the sleeve. It was a great tribute. Charles Barkley came over to the boys and said something like, your dad was one of my favorite players as a kid, and I know that he would be proud of both of you. With his style and his court vision, Pistol Pete Maravich took basketball to places few had ever thought possible. He was shooting from Steph Curry range before there was even a three-point line. He was Showtime before Magic Johnson. He was truly one of the greatest players of all time, just like Press said he would be. He had a very turbulent life, and I am glad for his sake and for his family's sake that he did find peace in those last six years of his life. As for me, I want to remember him for the long hair the floppy socks, making those no-look passes to his teammates, and playing with pure joy. That is the memory that we should all have of him. That is it for this episode. That concludes our three-part story on Pistol Pete Maravich. Join us next week when we share the story of the founding of the Chicago Bulls. We will discuss what it takes to create a brand new NBA team from scratch. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of sports yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There, you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports.
how about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.